Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Accord Research Alliance podcast. My name is Nathan Maloney and I work at Living Water International and today I'm having a conversation with Jill DeTemple who is an associate professor of religious studies at Southern Methodist University and Jill has spent time in Ecuador conducting research really from an anthropological perspective in a rural community there uh, looking at the issue of religion and development broadly and how um, different organizations and missionaries view it and approach it and also how those in the community um, view uh, this this conversation between religion and development and uh, tradition and modernity and and all of these things that get caught up uh, often in the work that we do as part of this alliance. So I found the conversation enlightening and helpful, and I think you will as well. Uh, Before we get started, though, if uh, you have ideas of who we should be talking with or ways we can improve this podcast, send those to us at ara at accordnetwork.org. We always look forward to getting those emails and, and hearing your thoughts. Um, And what I wanted to talk about then is development has always been seen as a modern project, um, something that is to bring modernity to peoples. Uh, And what I wanted to say is that that's a little bit monolithic. Well, thanks, Jill, for for joining me today. Um, Tell me a little bit more about yourself. What made you interested in religious studies? Uh, Well, that's a great question. So I was an Asian studies major at Bowdoin College way back in the day. Um, And then my sophomore year, there was this class called Evil, and I decided I had to take it because, you know, any course with a title like that seemed interesting. And it was a sort of classical Western course about the problem of evil, and that just got me hooked, and I never looked back. Awesome. Um, And so now... um you have a book, and I'm holding it here in front of me, uh, that you wrote in 2012 called Cement, Earthworms, and Cheese Factories. Uh, so a pretty awesome title there. Um, what's that book about? How would you describe it, and, and what led you to write it? So that book came about, I was working as a Peace Corps volunteer in Highland, Ecuador, in a very small little community. And... I'd sort of carried over some of the bigger questions from religious studies into that work. And one day, towards the end of my time of service, I was working on some um, composting with earthworms. And the guy I was working with just sort of put down his shovel and he looked at me and he said, so, you know, are you an evangelical or what? You know, and again, this is a community I'd been in for a couple of years, um, I had been godmother to a bunch of Catholic children. I had never opened a Bible in public. And I just looked at him and I was like, Vijay, what's, why the question? And he explained and he sort of pointed over the mountains to an indigenous community that had indeed sort of converted out of Roman Catholicism into evangelical Protestantism. And he said, you know, they converted and they got a water system. And that led me to start asking more people some questions about how they were thinking about religious identity and development interventions. 
And it was pretty clear that, especially in this community, they had a sort of idea about how far they would go religiously in exchange for how big a project. So they didn't want to give up a Roman Catholic identity. Um, and they sort of made fun of missionaries who came up and weren't offering any development aid. But they were willing to sort of play in some gray areas. And that led me eventually into graduate studies where I looked at this a lot more seriously. Uh, and then what you have is the book that sort of describes how this works out these days, at least in uh, rural Ecuador. Great. And so uh, you did spend some time there, right, uh, doing your graduate work for some additional research and um, kind of taking, I guess, more kind of an anthropological approach, I believe, to some of your research. I guess, you know, with the time you spent in this community in rural Ecuador and the research you were conducting as you came back, was there something that surprised you? Maybe something you were expecting to play out one way, but as you got into it, uh, it turned out to be something else. Yeah, I guess it's um, when I looked more into the roots of international development, it was the fact that it had always at least employed a lot of religious language. So when Truman in 1949 gets up to sort of introduce development, um, he calls it a faith. It's a faith in sort of Western progress from, and I'll quote here, from which we shall not be moved. Um, and, it, and Kennedy also used a lot of religious language. And so the, the surprising thing for me is how, if not exactly directly religiously rooted in any particular tradition, um, how much the language of religion and the metaphors of religion and the images of religion have always been tangled up, even in things like the Peace Corps, which are pretty ostensibly secular projects. Um, and so that made my friend's question much more logical to me, um, that he was actually asking for really good reasons. Uh, and I would say the second big surprise then was also when I looked at Latin American histories, um, how tied up religion and development have always been for people. When the Spanish came to conquer, they wanted people to convert to Christianity, but then they also gave them some pretty advanced technology, writing, guns, horses. Uh, and this had also been true when the Inca had come up and conquered that part of the world. Um, so I, the surprise is also, I think, my thesis of the book, which is that this stuff has always been really tangled up. But as scholars, we've never done a particularly good job of talking about that entanglement. Interesting. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, in the book, you have a couple ideas that along those lines, I'd love to dive into a little bit more deeply here. And the first was this idea of, quote, thinking religiously about development. And when mm. I read that, that really kind of jumped off the page uh, to me, that particular thought and idea. Um, so, so what did you mean by that? Or can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, so that by that I meant I, I wanted to use religious there in all of the ways we tend to use that as English speakers. So to think about it religiously in the terms of devotedly and deeply, um, where one would take into account um, the sort of deeper moods and motivations, as Clifford Geertz would call it, um, of what makes people tick. But then also with a really trained eye towards those moods and motivations as they might show up in a number of religious traditions around the world. Because again, what really surprised me as I started looking into development studies literature was the allergy to religion I was finding, um, where most folks were seeing it as something pushed by sort of northern and western governments for political control as if the sort of deeper moods and motivations around religion hadn't been informing it or as if missionary work hadn't been going on for, you know, for the centuries beforehand 
So by thinking about it religiously, I wanted to sort of dig deeper into those histories and those moods and motivations. And then also flip it um, from simply those who are offering development aid and assistance to those who receive it to try and figure out how they might interpret this kind of stuff. And and so then going to the second idea here, uh, which was, as, as you talk about, this idea of reforming modernity. Mm. Um, and, and you talk about that a bit in the book. So uh, explain that a bit more. What, what does that mean? Yeah, so there, there's a lot of talk um, in anthropological circles and sort of political science circles and some other places about what modernity was, what it is, how we've never quite determined it very well. And I draw a lot here on a theorist called Ar- uh, named Arjuna Potterai, who says that, look, you know, everybody now is modern. Everybody participates because we have these shared imaginations that come out of a shared media and migration and the ways now that people are sort of global no matter where they are. There's nobody cut off anymore. Um, and what I wanted to talk about then is development has always been seen as a modern project. Um, something that is to bring modernity to people, so whether that's water systems or whether that's access to education or healthcare or whatever the thing is. Uh, and what I wanted to say is that that's a little bit monolithic uh, in a way that doesn't take into account the fact that my folks, you know, my guy with his earthworms, was really wanting to negotiate what that would mean. Uh, and that ties back into those religious angles in that religion has often been talked about as something that holds modernity back, especially in development circles. Um, It might get in the way of something like equal rights for women um, or modern understandings of illness or something. And what became very clear to me is in the course of doing research and having lived with folks um, in Ecuador was that people are very aware of what modernity is and how they want it to look. And they're using development interventions and their participation or non-participation in those interventions to negotiate their own form of this. So that if we're going to look at something like a global modernity, we need to take into account not only those who might be pushing agendas sort of from the top down, but those who negotiate those agendas um, and who are capable of that negotiation in really specific sites where those agendas really come to sit. Uh, And so in the book, I look at how that gets negotiated in places like bedrooms around teachings around sexuality Um, and also just how you're going to have people sleep, um, because there are certain ideas about not having too many people in a bed, for example, Um, and in kitchens, uh, and then in a few other places where that kind of comes to sit in local communities. And I think that uh, idea to me really ties into this, you know, as we talk about what is modernity, um, ties into this concept that you write about, which is this idea of the whole person. And I, Mm. um, you know, that's, trying to define what is, you know, a whole person, you know, what are our aspirations um, as as people. Um, and obviously that's something that's growing a bit more, I think, within the development, uh, international development discourse, particularly, I guess, those who would maybe, you know, promote more of you know, what might be called alternative development, right? And, um, and you get that in your, in chapter six of your book, um, where you talk more about this idea of the whole person and how that's part of the, the vision or mission of some, some local faith-based NGOs um, that you were uh, researching there in Ecuador. And uh, in that chapter, you have this quote um, that stood out to me. It's uh, from one of the staff from, these, from this local Christian organization who said, um, 
you know, you said whose staff are, quote, committed to a vision of the whole person that uses a careful blend of tradition and modernity, science and religion. And, you know, that really stood out to me because I think that kind of perfectly describes, I guess, my mindset even, um, you know, working with a, with a Christian NGO and the evaluation work we do here at Living Water, kind of having to think holistically and, and hold, you know, science and religion and, and tradition and modernity, in, there's a tension there um, that we hold. And um, I'm assuming a lot of others uh, listening to this that are part of our research alliance uh, can identify with this as well. But I guess my question for you would be, you know, how did you see this, what you call a careful blend, or what the quote was, a careful blend, playing out for this local organization in Ecuador? And I guess maybe even more broadly, how are you seeing this blend um, and the effects of it playing out with other faith-based organizations um, you've gotten to know since your time in Ecuador? Yeah, so I think the particular organization you're referencing is a medical mission, um, and they use it, as your, your question pointed out, very, very overtly. So they train medical residents in Ecuador, and they really want those residents to come in with, and form a sense of vocation. So the first way they use it is to actually train future doctors to think of themselves not just as technicians, uh, but as somebody who might minister to someone, including themselves. Uh, it's, it was pretty interesting watching you know, young residents, so these are the top of Ecuadorian society, 24-year-olds, come into this study and be asked to think about why in the world are they there? And then how do they hope to translate that sense of mission or vocation into actually helping someone else? Um, and I have seen other versions of this um, in other religiously sponsored uh, places. Uh, how effective it is you know, it's really varied. Um, so I spent the last 10 years or so uh, looking at a Catholic-sponsored mission that was wildly successful when I did the research for the book that you're holding, um, and when I went back a few years later, had completely fallen apart. And they had taken this sense of sort of whole person and translated it into a sort of social capital model that told the women in these groups that they would be successful because they were Catholic and they were women. And I have those women on tape in the early 2000s saying that they were successful as a group. They were involved in the open market making cheese um, because they were women. And they were, <clears throat> excuse me, able to you know, tap into those deeper identities to move a development project forward. And it was creating better households. And they described in ways that the, their group uh, interactions socially were strengthening them and their opportunities in society. They talked about the group as a place to de-stress um, from the usual multiple roles that they were holding as women in a rural agricultural society. Um, after the group came into economic hard times, however, and would eventually fail, what I noticed about the whole person discourse as it was translated into social capital is they had actually wagered some of that capital and then lost it. And so their gender identities were shot, um, even though they did retain faith in the Catholic Church uh, they were a little more suspicious of things like the institutional modes of that church um, and how the church was sort of working beyond just a faith basis. The church was trying to give people economic support. So um, it, it, it has been really interesting to watch 
the different modes of whole person discourse, especially as it does get translated into something like social capital. Uh, but I think you're right about moves towards that sort of discourse across the development world, um, even outside of religiously based development. So starting with things like participatory development uh, in the 70s and 80s and then moving into more contemporary forms, there is a notion that you can't just throw people technology, that you have to take into account how they relate to one another in a community or whatever intervention you're doing will not last or could actually do harm. So I do think it's a, it's a hot topic and it's, it's one I'm glad you all are attentive to um, because it is one that is traditionally rooted in religious communities who do think about community. Um, and so I'm hoping, you know, if, if I could sort of wave a wand over the development world, my hope would be for greater interaction between folks who have been trying this in different ways, such that people could be attentive to best practices. Um, how is it we should talk about whole people? Right? Who might we exclude with that sort of conversation? Uh, and then how do you translate whole people into whole communities who can come together and make decisions about what's best for them? So that idea of whole person, I think... You know, as we think about the Accord Network and it being a network of Christian relief and development organizations, um, you know, many organizations in this network uh, would would share that idea and, and promote that idea. And that kind of ties into one of the other commitments that we we have as a network, which is to measure what matters and mm. and kind of part of that. I think we're implying, you know, as far as what matters you know, it's not just that we're measuring outcomes related to projects, although that is probably part of that, um, but also saying that development perhaps is, is deeper than um, just the material side of it that often is talked about. So, uh, you know, based on your research, based on your understanding of religion and development, do you have any thoughts or advice for this idea of measuring what matters? Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. It's one several people have been working on. So Marcia Sen's notion of development as freedoms, what are people able to do, um, I think might be a helpful starting place. So after, you know, folks have gone through development processes, um, he talks about things like, you know, are people able to express themselves? Uh, do people have access to education? Do people have the ability to utilize their talents in hobbies or free time, right? So, you know, that sort of notion of complete human being and all the ways that we can be in the world um, get put into a development major that doesn't have to do with gross national product or something, right? It's, um, are people actually free to engage in the things that allow them to develop the abilities they're, you know, that they are born with and that, you know, they can then use for their community. And one thing I like about the sense of development as a community thing, and that I think some religious groups are very good at, although not all, um, is this notion that development should make for a stronger community. So we're not just developing individual people into those freedoms, but that people are able to use their skills and proclivities than to somehow come together um, into something recognizable um, that would then give them a sense of power as that community goes forward in maybe needing to negotiate with a local government. Um, it's something I've seen in that original community I was in in the Peace Corps. 
when I was there in the mid-90s, they felt very, very powerless. And there wasn't a strong sense of community up there. Um, but when I went back 10 years later, something had shifted. Um, some of it was just absolute financial crisis in the country. Um, but then a few other things had happened such that I watched them en masse go down and take on the power <laughs> company and say, look, you really have to go fix those transformers. We haven't had power for a month. And that's something I hadn't seen before. And that to me was actually a mark of sort of community development and identity that had been completely missing when I showed up originally. And so my hope would be that in speaking about whole person discourse, there could also be sort of an emphasis, either a religious emphasis, you know, Christianity works nicely for that. There are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of great Christian writings about what community is. Um, other religions have their own versions of it, right? So, yeah, in Islam, right, you know, what is it to be that Islamic community? Um, Judaism, same thing, you know, pick your religion, really. But how could you use those sorts of metaphors and images and commitments to take development from perhaps being an overly individualistic sort of discipline uh, into something that also pays attention to these questions of, okay, how will we function together as a community? What does it mean to be in community? Um, and then I do believe that would also support, especially things like water projects, where you do have to have a lot of people coming together. Uh, to make those things work. And we've all seen dead water projects because everybody started fighting not too long after folks got there. So that, all that's to say is, I, yes, I think there's something really distinct that could be added to this whole thing um, that would actually strengthen development as a whole. Nice. So uh, let me switch gears. We've been talking a lot about your research in Ecuador and this book, um, but what's something you've been working on more recently or, or right now um, that you're excited about? So um, I am working on a second book, um, and this is the anatomy of the disaster I was talking about, where that women's group that was very, very successful in that first book um, has since completely fallen apart. Um, and I've been really lucky. Um, they have allowed me to come back and interview everybody who's left in the cooperative. Um, and I, the book will sort of focus on not just what, what would happen, you know, technically, what went wrong technically, such that the group owed a lot of money to everybody around them and was unable to continue. But then also, what did it really mean to use that social capital model around religion and gender identity? And then what did it mean to these women to lose that social capital when the whole thing failed? Um, and so the book will be a critique of overly social capitalized models of development um, but the other thing the book is looking at is changing religion, because I also think that a mistake that folks can make is to assume that religion doesn't change in local areas, when in fact it can change very quickly. Uh, in the case of the community I'm now working with in Ecuador, um, Catholicism is changing rapidly, as it is in a lot of parts of Latin America. It's becoming very, very charismatic. Um, and so one of the things that's affecting this identity piece for these women is the fact that charismatic Catholicism is now almost a majority status within their own church. And that the more traditional Silesian fathers who started their organization are certainly not charismatic. And there's been a real disconnect between how one goes about things like development and charity based on those different identities that are now sort of dividing that community and the church. And so part of the book is also tracing what happens when rapid religious change comes to an area? Um, 
and then what that can do to the ways that people look at development as a process. Because what I've come to understand is the more charismatic wing of the Catholic Church focuses less on development and more on charity. Uh, they feel it's more um, effective. Uh, and that's then echoing some broader political trends into neoliberalism in the area, uh, which is to say that development happens in specific times and places. And I do think as we think about development as a process to ignore the times and places, we'll be at our peril if anything is really going to happen. Um, so that's what the new one's looking at. Um, I hope it'll be out in 2019. Awesome. Yeah, I was going to ask when it's coming out. It sounds fascinating. So, yeah. so That's probably an aspirational date, but I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, it always is with books, isn't it? So, um, Well, good. So one other thing I wanted to mention is that um, in addition to your role at SMU, you're also on the steering committee um, for the Religion and International Development Unit at the American Academy of Religion. And so for anyone listening that might not be familiar with AAR, um, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that and why uh, you think it might be interesting for those a part of this alliance to make their way out to Denver this year in November uh, for the annual meeting. So the American Academy of Religion is the largest um, group of folks who study religion uh, in the world. Uh, it is, despite the title, an international group. Um, so this is about 8,500 folks who are interested in the academic study of religion from a variety of angles. Um, there are those like me who are sort of social scientists who get into it. Um, there are biblical scholars, although they have, we have a parallel organization, which is the Society for Biblical Literature. Um, so this is everything from folks who study ancient Indian myths to... Folks like me, uh, who are interested in how contemporary folks are using religion and everything from film to comic books to, you know, TV sitcoms or what have you. Um, and it's a huge conference where we all get together and talk about this stuff. Um, I used to feel just a little bit isolated at the conference. There are a lot of us who work in Latin America who go. Um, but then in 2009, um, a few Canadian guys um, got together and really wanted to look at the religious aspects of international development. I was thrilled with this, um, and we got together and formed this group. And every year we have really interesting panels <clears throat> excuse me, that come from a different of angles, um, looking at this intersection of religion and development. So last year, we our theme was vulnerability. We really wanted to see how different folks thought about vulnerability within development and aid. And so we had papers about post-typhoon in the Philippines. How were religiously sponsored organizations handling you know, people's reactions to this thing? How does one go about both sort of rebuilding an area, but then also being attentive to the genuine religious questions people have after that kind of event? Um, we had a paper looking at partners in health. Uh, in Haiti, and their proclivity to sort of look at whole person, whole community, uh, and take vulnerability seriously, uh, but then also not say that, take a top-down approach that would say that we can make you less vulnerable, we being like folks from the United States or Britain or somebody, but that we are going to sit with you um, and then ask what you think we ought to do about this. Um, and so I, I have found it to be an incredibly rich space for this kind of exchange. Um, our hope in the group is to bring practitioners together with academics. And we're finding that that's a place where the worlds don't meet all that often. 
Um, and then we also have a concerted focus on things like theology, such that we want to make constructive work possible within the group. So it's not just sort of a description of what's out there, but that we could entertain theologies around this stuff as well. Um, and we've been going, like I said, since 2009, and it's been a really productive, fabulous space. And we're really hoping to get more and more people into it as we go. That's great. And uh, that's great to hear you're interested in, in having uh, practitioners as well to engage in those conversations. Um, and as most of us listening to this podcast um, are practitioners, um, uh, that's that's good to hear. And hopefully some of us can uh, to make it out this year, I know it happens a couple weeks after um, our annual conference um, that we have every year, uh, which is happening in late October. So, um, so thanks for sharing that. And before I let you go, um, let me ask, what's a book you've read in the past year or so that's affected the way you think about international development and religion? Hmm. Let's see. I tend to tie almost everything I read into it, but... Um, <laughs> Oh. Or a couple. You can mention a couple. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm trying to think of... So, I had my class... It's an older book, um, but I revisited it, and it reminded me of some really interesting thing. It's um, Anna Singh's In the Realm of the Diamond Queen. And this is a book about Indonesia. Um, and she talks about the intersection of state power and development in shamanism, which is an indigenous form of religion there, as it meets up with Islam and Christianity. And in watching students read the book again, I was reminded about how complex all of these things are and then how, again, development can kind of – it's not just religion that gets pulled into the development world, but how development can get pulled into religious imagination as well. Uh, the shamans in the book – talk about things like roads uh, and road building. Uh, and it was a really helpful reminder that our imaginations are flexible enough that we mix these kinds of things up all the time. And that to be effective as someone doing development, we, uh, development, I think we must be really, really attentive to those imaginations. So again, that's um, In the Realm of the Diamond Queen uh, by Anna Singh. Okay, great. I, and I'll put that in the, the notes for the podcast so people can uh, find that and get a link. Okay, that'd be great. Saying it starts with a T. <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. Thank you. That'll help. Um, well, good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, really fascinating uh, thoughts you're putting forward here that um, I think is helpful for those in our network who are uh, looking at research and, and evaluation of the work um, that we do. Uh, very, very important things that we need to be um, thinking about. So um, for anyone that wants to find out more about you or the work you're doing, uh, where can people find you online? So um, the easiest way is to put my name in a search engine along with SMU for Southern Methodist University. And that will take you to my sort of department homepage. Um, there's not a lot there, but what is there is my email address. Uh, and I'm more than happy to start a conversation with people. Awesome. Well, great. Well, uh, thanks again for your time, and um, I appreciate you coming on. All right. Thank you so much, Nathan. All right. Thanks, Joe. Bye.